Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Hadley Heath Manning, Senior Policy Analyst at the Independent Women's Forum and your host for today's Working for Women podcast. Today I'm here with Amber Smith, who is an IWF Senior Fellow and a Military Advisor for Concerned Veterans for America. Amber served in the United States Army as an OH-58D Kiowa Warrior Helicopter Pilot for almost eight years. She served in combat during deployments to Iraq for Operation Iraqi Freedom and Afghanistan for Operation Enduring Freedom. During her service as a pilot, she earned the title of Pilot-in-Command and Air Mission Commander. Amber has extensive experience in security and reconnaissance operations. Thank you for joining us today, Amber. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to be discussing some of the policies that govern the U.S. military and specifically women in the military and get some of Amber's perspectives on those topics. And first, Amber, I have to tell you, I I have to confess, really, that I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to women who serve in the U.S. military and the types of roles that they play or that they can play. So maybe to get started, can you just give me and give our listeners an overview of what types of roles today women are playing in our military and what our policy is, uh, maybe specifically on women in combat roles? Well, prior to uh, Secretary of Defense Carter's decision to uh, remove any form of exclusion from women serving in combat a few weeks ago, uh, women were allowed to serve in basically combat support operations. So they weren't necessarily in any form of direct combat role. So they could uh, drive uh, vehicles in convoys. They could be medics. Um, they could serve as logistics officers or any sort of support position that you could think of basically that contributes to um, a successful battlefield. Uh, the only area where women could serve in a direct combat unit was aviation. Uh, women have been doing that for um, decades. So that was sort of the one exclusion to the rule was uh, women who flew in aviation but uh, after Secretary Carter um, made the decision to remove any form of exclusion that prevented women from serving in the, those direct ground uh, combat units or jobs, and so now we're going to see uh, women who are able to apply for special operations jobs like ranger units, Navy SEALs, special forces, uh, as well as your standard ground infantry role. Wow. So this is kind of uh, just changed recently, it sounds like, our policy on on women in combat. And uh, I guess that's the prerogative of the Secretary of Defense. He can just make that decision on his own. Is that right? Well, I was um, a little surprised at his decision because previously the Department of Defense had said that they wanted each branch, the Navy, the Army, the Marines, uh, the Air Force uh, to basically come up with a reason as to whether it be through a study, uh, interviews, however they conducted um, their method to, to come up with a reason as to why uh, they didn't want women to serve in these positions. If they wanted an exclusion, uh, an exception to the policy, uh, they had to ha- have a reason uh, by the by the end of. Uh, this year of 2015. So each branch had to say whether or not they were looking for an exception. And the Air Force and the Navy came back 
and said that they were not looking for an exception. So they basically agreed to open all jobs to women. Uh, the Army hadn't decided yet, and the Marines had said they spent over $30 million on a study as to why they didn't want uh, women in these specialized roles, whether it be their form of special forces or uh, direct infantry ground units. Um, and their reasons behind it uh, were anything from women getting injured more often, um, their shooting skills, and uh, overall sort of unit cohesion and morale. So I was surprised that Secretary, I, I personally thought Secretary Carter would have sort of uh, gone with what each branch recommended. Otherwise, why would you tell the branches that they had, you know, basically a right. chance to plead their case? Why uh, ask for so input thought, if you're uh, going to disregard it? Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's pretty much what happened. Secretary Carter said, well, I think differently. Um, yeah. and made the decision. So uh, I, I was surprised to see that and uh, kind of a, a little disappointed that he went against the branches on that one. Right. Well, I know that it's sort of a controversial subject, whether or not women should be serving in combat roles. And a lot of people have opinions. People say, well, women should be treated equally on the one hand, and then other people believe that women shouldn't serve in combat roles. But I'm really curious what your perspective is, Amber, as a woman who has served in combat, what is what is your opinion on you know the should or should not question? Well, my whole thing is is that I believe that there should be a mission standard, not a gender standard. So obviously, there's differences between men and women. I don't think that should be you know I don't think that needs to be hidden or act like that isn't the case, um, especially when it comes to the physical standards. Um, or the physical capabilities, but I think that women should be given the opportunity to try. Uh, that doesn't mean a guaranteed, uh, you know, path to success. Uh, I don't think there should be any quotas, any double standards, um, no separate but equal physical standards, especially. Um, and that way it sort of makes it job specific. So instead of just, you know, uh, throwing a blanket over it, the entire branch of the military and saying, hey, here's your physical standard, I think it should be a mission standard. So in order to fly a helicopter, you have to be able to do X, Y, and Z, regardless if you're a man or a woman. If you're going to be in the infantry or some form of special operation where the physical standard uh, to complete the mission needs to be much higher, then you have to be able to do X, Y, and Z to be in that job. That's where I think it's black and white. You either meet the standard and all of the criteria to be in the job, or you don't, regardless if you're a man or a woman. But it then opens the door for everyone uh, to try. So with the, with the opening of so many different combat roles to women now, is there the potential or the threat or maybe it's already happening that we would create double standards for, for example, in physical tests that we would sort of lower the bar for women who yeah. are aiming to, yeah. to get into some of these roles? Absolutely. That's why I said there's sort of uh, an issue with it where sort of the same reason why the door was, you know, o opened very quickly by Secretary Carter. Uh, you know, it's not going to work if, you know, females are going to be in units to satisfy political agendas. Uh, and that does make me nervous, uh, you know, in terms of, oh, in, in order 
you know, we opened these jobs to women. Now we need to make sure that there's a female presence in every single unit. But we can't just have the one female in the unit because she's the only one that passed the test. We don't want her to be all alone for safety considerations. So we want at least three other females with her. So now our quota is four. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, it, it, unfortunately, uh, if you could keep all politics uh, aside, I think it could actually work. Uh, yeah. I, I spoke to another. Uh, it has a chance to go down the political path. Yeah, I spoke to another woman who had some military experience, and uh, her position on it, and I found this really interesting. Was she said it's really unfair to those women uh, who haven't passed the same standard, whether it's a physical test or a test in terms of their skills, if they haven't been trained and prepared in the same way as the male soldiers in the battlefield. It's really unfair to them to put them in that situation. And I thought that's an interesting perspective because most of the time I think Americans are, number one, uh, we're concerned with our safety and security as a nation, whether or not our military is being most effective. But to see it from the viewpoint of the individual uh, female women, you know, the women who are in those combat roles, I thought was an interesting perspective. But I want to ask you about some of those concerns and considerations. And you mentioned, you've touched on a few of these things, but when it comes to safety of, of the women who are maybe in units where there's not as many women or uh, you mentioned in some of the reports from the various branches that they came up with some other considerations about maybe injuries to women and how women are more prone to, I know as a health policy person, I know women are more prone to certain injuries like stress fractures just because our bones aren't as strong. And um, there were a couple other things that you mentioned in terms of what those concerns and considerations are when it comes to women in the military, specifically in combat roles. So can you elaborate on what some of those are? Now that moving forward, we're going to have a policy that opens so many combat roles to women. What are some of the things that, you know, that might concern us moving forward? Well, I think something that we sort of hit on before um, was basically that standard not being adjustable at all. Because, look, I, I've been in a all you know, a primarily male-dominated unit that when I was a helicopter pilot in the Army, there were very few females there. And what I found was that if you accomplish, like if you are doing the exact same test, taking the exact same check rides, uh, doing the same physical requirements, and you don't have any special treatment, there's not going to be uh, an issue of resentment. Unfortunately, uh, basically... Um, that resentment will occur if women start getting special treatment, uh, if they are getting injured and someone else is having to pick up the slack because of them not being able to accomplish whatever mission is, uh, the mission is, uh, that's where sort of the unit cohesion and the morale will start to drop and there'll be some resentment between uh, the men and women. Uh, so I think sort of the unit cohesion uh, and morale is one of those issues. Uh, that that we will see. And I think it also has to do um, with something as broad as even the selective service law. So now, you know, women are open to serve in combat, but they're still not having to sign up within 30 days of their 18th birthday for the selective service, uh, you know, if the draft was ever to be reinstated. So I think there's already a double standard uh, right there that hopefully is going to be addressed here shortly. Uh, but in, ter in terms of being injured, uh, I think that we're still going to see very low numbers of women in these special operations or infantry units. If you look at uh, 
nations around the world that allow women into some of these combat units, their numbers are incredibly low. So even though they have uh, the opportunity to try, uh, because of the physical standard remaining as high as it is, uh, that it's uh, just naturally easy for easier for a man to accomplish than a woman, uh, there are going to be those injuries there. But it will be at smaller numbers merely because of the amount of women that are in the service, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the selective service and, and that maybe that might be addressed soon. I'm curious how how might they address this and what you know because I don't want to be asked to sign up for selective service but I guess that might be a reality do you think that we're moving in the direction of you know I guess equalizing the treatment of men and women and asking all 18 year olds to sign up or is there going to be some different kind of policy well, there yeah well they they actually have to in in 1981 the Supreme Court uh, ruled that a a male only a military draft was constitutional because women were banned from those combat jobs. And so the, the military draft, its intent is to fill combat replacements during a time of war. So as long as females were exempt from those combat jobs, there was no, um, there was no requirement for them to sign up for the draft. But now that women are, uh, open to those jobs and they can fill those combat positions, now it means that it that the 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 draft is essentially discriminatory towards men because women do not have to sign up right now. And so I think the administration, Secretary Carter, uh, the Obama administration, they've said that they you know are open to re- reviewing the selective service law. And in the early '90s, the law was reviewed by the Supreme Court, and they found that once again it was constitutional because women again were not in those combat jobs. Uh, but I, I think things are going to have to change here fairly quickly because uh, they're now open to women. Wow. Um, so one other thing that you sort of touched on was that there are women serving in combat roles in the military units of other countries. And I'm curious if you know how our policy on women in combat compares to other countries or sort of what the world standard is. How many countries, um, the majority, the minority, allow women to fight in combat roles? And, and are there still some countries that, that have a ban on women in combat? I imagine they're sort of a mix. Or, or what do you know about that stuff? Yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a lot of nations around the world where, where women are not. They don't have a significant presence in the military. Uh, but believe it or not, they're actually uh, a lot of Western countries, especially European nations, uh, have a lot of women serving on the front lines. Uh, but I think where the comparison has, uh, gets a little tricky is that just it, it has a lot to do with semantics the same way it did in the U.S. when we're saying, oh, because women have been serving in combat. You know, I served in combat in, in 2005 and 2006 and 2008. And, you know, women weren't open to combat jobs until twenty the end of 2015. So it's like... A lot of it has to do with semantics. So Germany might say, oh, yes, women serve in combat because they do. They just might not be in a combat job, if that makes any sense. So, uh, yeah, so it gets a little bit tricky between the language uh, translation and and what we call combat versus what they call combat. But uh, Denmark, Germany, France, Romania, Israel, Canada, all of these Western nations uh, 
have uh, women serving in combat in their militaries. Uh, Denmark, for example, they've had women um, serving in all ranks, including those, those combat jobs that we've been discussing since 1998. Um, and from some of their research, they said that women have served uh, and performed exactly as well as men have, especially in the land uh, combat roles. Um, and they have to meet the exact same physical standards uh, as the men do. And so I, I think that would be a great sort of uh, success story for us to follow, where we've seen that women can be as successful as long as none of the standards are lowered uh, in, any, in any form, that they can do the same job as men can. If they, you know, they might have to work that much harder uh, to be there, but if that's what they want and that's what they're uh, shooting for, then they should be given the, sh- the chance to try. Yeah. Um, now, as a, I mentioned, I do healthcare policy for IWF, and so I can't resist asking you this last question about our, our women and our men who serve in the military. Of course, uh, anyone who serves in the military becomes a veteran, and in the United States, we have, uh, I, I think, a good culture of esteeming our veterans. Whenever we go to a Broncos game here in Denver, we usually recognize a, a veteran, his or her family. Um, but it seems like for all the respect that we have for our veterans, culturally, we have a lot of problems providing health care to our veterans. And so since you are a veteran, I wanted to ask your perspective on the VA or Veterans Affairs. Why, why isn't this working better? Why can't we do health care better uh, for our veterans? What's your take on the VA? Well, I think that, uh, it's because it's a government-run bureaucracy and it's grown so large that it's no longer effective in any way, shape, or form. There's zero accountability. Uh, it's, you, you know, I saw both sides in the military. I saw TRICARE uh, healthcare, which is for active duty soldiers, and then out I've seen VA uh, healthcare. And it's just, it, it, it's absolutely disgraceful that our men and women who have served our country, regardless of whether or not they did during a time of war, uh, they serve the nation honorably and that they're having to, you know, get out of the military and struggle with a system that has so much red tape that it is the most frustrating thing in the world. Um, from the smallest things of calling to make an appointment uh, to being in the emergency room. And, and the, th- the thing that's almost uh, more disappointing with the VA is that the care is so inconsistent so since you work in healthcare, you probably hear, you know, some veterans are in very good areas where they have a managed, uh, a properly managed healthcare, you know, facility. Uh, and so they don't understand the complaints that are happening with the VA. But then you have other, uh, a lot of the more rural areas where veterans are just not being able to make appointments they're sort of seeing some of those unethical practices that uh, we've heard since the VA scandal broke over a year and a half ago, where people were put on state wait lists and signed up for ghost clinics that didn't even exist in order to make uh, their facilities look better on paper for VA headquarters in Washington, D.C. So it's an uphill battle for all veterans who are having to get into the system. Um, And it's being the problems, uh, are being addressed. We've all seen what is happening now. Uh, I don't think that enough is being done to fix the VA. I think it's a lot of, uh, unfortunately, there's a big PR push out of the VA to make it look like more is being done than what is actually being done. 
Um, and I'd like to see leadership out of the VA focus more on accountability and fixing the VA instead of going after their critics who are pointing out their flaws. Uh, yes. I, don't, I don't think that that is uh, leadership, and I also don't think it's helping anyone or veterans. It's helping VA, which is sort right. of the problem with um, the basically the mindset and the culture at the VA. It's let's take care of the VA and the employees, not the veterans. And that's yes. where it needs to sort of do a 180 flip and say, all right, let's take care of veterans first. Right. It's pretty remarkable that given this example of, of what happens when the government runs healthcare for our veterans, that we'd still consider policies that turn over, you know, so much control of the healthcare of other people to the, the government as well. But that's a different yes, subject should, for a different, they do field <laughs> different trip for people right. who are for pro health, pro government run healthcare. Go yeah. on a field trip to the VA. Yeah. Well, Amber, I've really enjoyed talking with you today, and I think that we've learned a lot about women in combat and, and the policy and how it's changing. Can you tell us where to find out more about you and your work? Yeah, you can go to my website. It's officialambersmith.com, or you can find me at Twitter at AmberSmithUSA. That's great. Thanks again uh, for joining us today, Amber. Thanks for having me, Hadley. Okay, this has been another edition of IWF's Working for Women podcast. We'd like to thank Amber Smith for being our guest today, and we'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in. You can find out more about this topic and many more at iwf.org. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.